0: own a Bible, you can keep that. That's our gift to you. Uh, we want to give Bibles away, so please go ahead and take that. If you know someone who doesn't have a Bible and needs one, like everyone, uh, take one, give it to that person. So uh, Mark chapter 6 is where you're going to be. If you are using a seatback Bible, you're looking for page 840, 841, somewhere around there, uh, 848, 41. So as you're uh, turning there, um, I like to try and take the beginning of when I get up here to thank people who serve in our church. And so, this morning, as we enter into, as we've entered into 2019. I just like to thank uh, everybody um, for all of the ways that you guys serve throughout and all served throughout 2018. All of the different Sunday morning ministries, the different events we've put on. Um, elders, our, just everybody, uh, thank you, because church is not just one person, is not just one group, it's a community of people coming together to serve one another, to care for one another, to, to lift each other up, so everybody, in whatever way you serve and whatever you have done in 2018, uh, to help be a blessing to this church, thank you, thank you so much for what you do. Um, it's the only way this is going to work is, is through God's grace and through people coming together to serve one another. So thank you, everybody. Um, so as I said, we're going to be in Mark 6 in our series, Walking Through the Book of Mark. And so um, as we begin, where Jesus in this passage we're going to look at this morning is going home. And um, I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, a hero's welcome, right? When somebody comes back to their hometown after accomplishing something great, they get this warm reception. People... Pay attention. For us, we pay attention, right? Every four years, when we pay attention to the Olympics, um, you focus on the people who are from Illinois, right, or the people who are from Chicago or Chicago land. You give special interest to them or certain celebrities. uh, You you pay attention, and when they come home, they receive that hero's welcome, right? If a if a sports team wins a championship, we literally throw them a parade throughout the city uh, to welcome them back after their victory. Jesus here goes back to Nazareth, goes back to his hometown. And after everything he's already done, after all of the healings, all of the miracles, all of the teaching, everything that he has accomplished, you would think that he's coming home to a hero's welcome. And yet that's not the case. This morning we're going to see he comes home not only not to a hero's welcome, but to straight up rejection. To those being going from astonishment to being offended by just him as a person. And we're going to learn from that and see that, you know what, that's the world we live in. Things haven't changed all that much, but that rejection doesn't stop Jesus, and rejection can't stop us. We continue on. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into Mark 6. Heavenly Father, you are good, and you're good all the time. Lord, thank you for giving us another Sunday to gather, to celebrate. Lord, every Sunday we get together together. It's a, it's a little mini Easter. It's a, we do it on Sunday morning because your son rose on a Sunday morning. Uh, we gather and celebrate the new life that we find through the resurrection. And so, Lord, as we open your word this morning, as we study, Lord, you, we know you have a message for us, God. I pray that we would be humble enough to hear it and bold enough to take steps as you call us to change, as you call us to respond to what you have for us. Lord, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So we're going to be in Mark 6, uh, starting in verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went out among the villages teaching. So Jesus comes back home, comes back to Nazareth, and he's invited to speak at the synagogue. We've seen this happen a couple of times, that synagogues would invite local, they would invite rabbis to come and speak, to come and teach. And so Jesus has this reputation. He's known as a good teacher. And so he's invited to come and speak at the synagogue. And it says that the people were astonished at what he had to say. And then they start to ask some questions. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? His reputation, we've talked about this as we've walked through Mark, his reputation precedes him, travels ahead of him, and word has gotten back to his hometown of Nazareth of the things he is doing, of the the mighty miracles he is doing, of the teachings he has done, and here, teaching once again. Here in Nazareth, it says they are astonished at the way he speaks, astonished by the things he has done, but that quickly turns, as we see in verse 3. How quickly they go from astonishment to offense but I would argue maybe that astonishment isn't all that genuine. I don't think it came from what Jesus was saying, but rather the fact that they know him, or at least the people thought that they knew him. Nazareth is a small town. Jesus grew up there. He was a young boy there running around with his friends. His dad was the carpenter. His dad, Joseph, was a carpenter. Jesus himself was a carpenter. Even that word carpenter is more like general contractor. Which I just think is great that Jesus, by his nature, like his, his job on earth before going into ministry, he was a builder. He built things. He created things with his hands. And that wasn't a bad thing at this time. It was a respected position that if you had a trade in Jewish culture, you were, it was a respected position. But the thing was that in Jewish culture, you had to stay in your lane. Class roles were a huge part, and there was no rising above your station in life. Right? In our society, we love those stories. Right, The person who pulls themselves up by their bootstraps. Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team, goes on to be the greatest basketball player to ever live. Don't argue with me on that. <laughs> J.K. Rowling, single mom, battling depression, in debt, rejected by multiple publishers before Harry Potter blows up and takes over the world. We love those stories, those success stories where somebody comes from nothing and makes themselves into something great. But in Jewish culture at that time, that didn't happen. That wasn't a thing. You stayed in your class, you stayed in your lane. If you were a carpenter, you were a a blue collar person, that's your world, that's your box, you stay there. And so what the people are saying is not, when they say, isn't this just the carpenter? They're saying, basically, who gives him the right to say these things? What gives him the right To teach us. Who does he think he is? Why does he think he gets to rise above his station? Because to be a teacher, to be a rabbi, that was one of the most highly respected things you could be in Jewish culture. So where does he get this from? Who does he think he is? Because, you see, the people thought they knew Jesus. They thought they understood him because they had grown up with him. They knew him for so long. They lived around him. They had seen him grow. He spent 30-something years in this small town. So they thought they knew who he was. They had an understanding of who he was. But the questions they ask about Jesus, they reveal their lack of understanding. Because if they knew Jesus, they would know the answers to these questions they ask Is God. Where did this man get these things? From his father. From God. What is the wisdom given to him? It is the wisdom of God. How are such mighty works done by his hands? By the power of the Holy Spirit. By God but they couldn't get past what they thought they already knew about him. They couldn't get past their initial reaction to him. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? The son of Mary, this phrase, scholars are going to debate on why they say the son of Mary. Some are going to say that because at that time, in that culture, you weren't known by your mother, you were known by your father. Your, Your bloodline, your lineage, your name went through your father. And so for them to say he's the son of Mary, Some may say that it's because Joseph is dead at this point. And so they're referring to him based on his closest parent parent who's still alive that would be Mary. Others say it's an insult. It's not that he's the son of Joseph because, again, he grew up in a small town. Everybody knows everybody else's business. And we just celebrated Christmas, the story of a virgin giving birth. A young teenage girl who was betrothed, found to be pregnant, Joseph wasn't the dad. And that word traveled. I do think this is a little bit of an insult. Who does Jesus think he is? He's just a carpenter. He's just the son of Mary. Even his origin story, we, we were never quite sure what happened there with Mary. He's the son of her. They add to this speculation that they know who Jesus is because they know his brothers and sisters. They say, look, we, we, know his, we all grew up together. Everybody knows everybody. His brothers and sisters are still here. Everybody still lives here. We've known Jesus for a long time, and so it says they take offense at him because they thought they knew him. And they made their assumptions, and they made their decisions about who Jesus was based on their own understanding. But this still happens today. Outside of the church, people hear bits and pieces. They decide they've heard enough about who Jesus is. They make a decision not based on a real relationship with Jesus, but rather on a distant observation of what it means and looks like to be a Christian. And so the typical answers are, Jesus was a good man. He was a great teacher. He was a good thinker. But he wasn't God. He couldn't be. How could he possibly be good? Be God. He was just some guy from the middle of nowhere who said some nice things, just like any other good teacher, like any other great religious leader. They refused to actually get to know Jesus. They refused to actually study the word, to truly get into God's word, ask questions, pursue Jesus, because it's easier and safer to decide from a distance, I know who Jesus is. I don't need to know anymore what happens if I study, what happens if I learn, what happens if I get to know him and I find out I'm wrong. Now i got to make some life changes. So it's easier to just say, I'm going to keep Jesus over here. I know who he is and not invest in Christianity. But we do the same thing inside the church. Christians will say, I have heard enough stories, I've heard enough sermons, I've been to enough Bible studies, I know God and I know him enough. Even walking through a book like Mark, taking a gospel story and breezing through it, saying, you know what, I've heard enough of the Jesus stories, I know the parables, i got a general idea of where this is going, I know the ending, I don't really need to study all that hard. And we ignore certain stories, we look past certain aspects and details because, well, I've heard this a hundred times backwards and forwards, there's nothing new for me to learn here. The beautiful thing about scripture, about God Himself, is that there's always more to learn. There's always another layer. There's always another piece. There's always another attribute. There's always another part of Him to reveal Himself to you. That day when we stop learning, that day when we think, I have arrived, I don't I have arrived. I don't need to know anymore. That's the day we begin to fall away from God. When we stop learning, when we stop asking questions, we start leaning on our own understanding, we will quickly find ourselves walking away from the will of God. See, both sides, in and out of the church, we want to, ultimately it comes down to, we want to make God in our own image. We want to pick and choose who God is, who Jesus is. We want to make him manageable and acceptable, easy to relate to, easy to control, moldable to whatever situation we are in, whatever season we are in, whatever situation we find ourselves in. We want him to agree with our decisions. We want to make God in our own image. We take something like Jesus having dinner with the, with the sinners, right? We, we study that in Mark 2. Jesus was having a meal and it says he was with tax collectors and sinners. And so then we say, well, Jesus hung out with sinners. He welcomed everybody. We should just love and accept, period. Yes, Jesus loved and accepted. He welcomed all kinds of folks to the table. Everybody was welcome to follow Jesus. But he also, in that same situation, says, these people are sick and need a doctor. Something is wrong with the people at the table, and they need help. I can help them. Something needs to change. Healing needs to happen. He was never condoning or excusing sin, but rather he was the doctor to bring a cure. Yes, Jesus hung out with sinners and outcasts, and he called them to life change. Go and sin no more. Go and have peace. Go and tell others about what the Lord has done, how he has changed your life. But we want the message to stop at, Jesus loves everyone, period. Yes, that's true. God loves you. But he loves you too much to leave you where you are. To leave you in your sin. All are welcome. All are welcome to come and pursue Jesus. But as you do that, if you really go looking for him, you will meet him and he will challenge you and call you to follow him and him alone and let go of some things in your life. But that message we don't like, it makes us uncomfortable. It makes us bigoted. It makes us close-minded. And so we just ignore that second half. We pick and choose who Jesus is and who we want him to be. The problem those in Nazareth had was that they believed they knew who Jesus was just from observing him from afar. Because they were near him, because they had heard the stories, but it wasn't based on a real relationship with him. You can put yourself around other Christians, you can put yourself in church, but if you don't actually do the work yourself of trying to get to know God, of reading, of studying, of praying, of seeking him on your own, of asking questions, why would you expect to know him? Why would you think you have a relationship with him through osmosis? If we pick and choose the parts of God, of who God is, we have turned our faith into an idolatry. We don't get to ignore or disregard the parts of God we don't like make us uncomfortable. God is who he is. The Bible is what it is. We don't get to, nor do we have the power to change that. And so the people here take offense to Jesus. We've seen people get offended by Jesus in these first five chapters. Only this time, Jesus didn't start a fight with any religious religious leaders. He didn't do anything that goes against tradition. It was just him being who he is that offended people. Just Jesus on his own was offensive enough. This is a pretty clear theme throughout Mark and throughout the scriptures in general. In 1 Peter 2, Peter writes, for it says in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame so the honor is for you who believe but for those who do not believe the stone and the builders the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense they stumble because they disobey the word jesus will be to all people one of two things he will be the rock of offense or he will be the chief cornerstone to those who hear the messages who see jesus who engage with jesus and then say who is he What makes Christianity say that they have all of the answers? Who says the Bible is true? To some, Jesus will always be offensive. But for others, he will be the chief cornerstone that everything is built on. That's what Jesus is. He's both of those things. He is the one who some will stumble over. But he's also the one that everything else gets built on. That cornerstone, that vital piece in the Jenga tower. Where if you pull it out, without Jesus, without the cross, without the resurrection, without his perfect life, everything else comes falling down. Paul says in one of his letters, if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, if he isn't who he said he was, if he didn't rise again, then Christians are to be are, are to be hated, are to be punished, are to be in the worst trouble. We're in more trouble than anybody else if we're putting our faith in him and him alone. So who is Jesus and to you? The word you are. Is he the rock of offense or is he the chief cornerstone? The people here in Nazareth decide that Jesus was offensive. And so Jesus responds in verse 6. He responds to their questioning. He responds to their offense with an idiom that is pretty famous at this point in both Jewish and Greek culture. He says in verse 4, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Basically saying, a prophet is well-received everywhere except for his hometown. Except for the people who know him. Except for the people who think they know him best. It's a reference back, if you go back into the Old Testament, into the time of the prophets, you're going to see that every prophet was rejected. Every prophet was ended up killed for what they had been called to do, preach the word of God. Jesus is identifying himself with that role of prophet prophet is one who speaks the word of God. Jesus is saying, I speak the word of God. We know in John, he is the word of God. And he's saying, I, I'm like those prophets. I'm going to get rejected. I'm going to end up just like all of the prophets did, rejected and killed. We've seen this happen to Jesus here in his hometown. He's rejected. Remember even a couple of chapters ago, His relatives came looking for him. His relatives thought he was out of his mind and they wanted to pull him away from the crowds and the chaos because they thought Jesus was crazy. Jesus says that's pretty typical for one who's going to be in line and preach the word of God. But then we see in verse 5 a strange occurrence is mentioned in verse 5. It says that he could not do any mighty works except he laid hands on a few sick people and he healed them. It says Jesus couldn't do Mighty works in this town. In the story of Peter Pan, Peter Pan's right-hand assistant is Tinkerbell. Uh, At one point in the story, uh, Captain Hook poisons Peter Pan's water, and he doesn't know it. Tinkerbell does, and so Tinkerbell intentionally drinks the poison to avoid Peter drinking it and dying, and she herself is dying, and the only way to save her is if children believe in fairies. In the book, it says clap. They have to clap and make noise to bring Tinkerbell back from the dead. Because if enough children truly believe in fairies, she would not die. That's not what's happening here. Jesus' power is not limited because the people don't believe. His power and authority does not come from whether or not people believe in him, people follow him, or people reject him. When it says Jesus could not do mighty works here, what it means when it says that is that they didn't believe in who he was, so why would they go to him for help? They didn't think he had the power. They didn't think they are, they are offended by him. They don't have the belief to follow him, so why would they go to him for anything? They didn't trust him. They didn't actually believe in him. So he's not going to do miracles. He's not going to do healings and signs and wonders because nobody's asking for it. Nobody's coming and asking. They had the Messiah in their midst. They had the opportunity to be with and to learn from and receive from God. But due to their unbelief, they missed out. They missed out on Jesus. He didn't come to earth to put on a show and put on a spectacle and do tricks for people. When Jesus does signs and wonders and miracles, it's not to try and say, hey, look, follow me. He's not putting on a show trying to win people over. A lot of people have trouble. I I know I've, I personally have been in a place where I've thought that, you know, if Jesus would just, if God would just show up. If God would just show up and do one of those big Old Testament kind of miracles, right? If, if God would just go to one of those places in the world where, where there's starvation and hunger and he would just rain down some food. Right? If God would just take those people who are violently against him and just call down fire, you know, Old Testament brimstone and fire kind of stuff. If God would just do one big miraculous thing, then I would believe, then I, my doubt would be totally gone. My worry, my concern, everybody's doubt would be totally gone if he would just show up and do something massive. One of the commentaries I read said that humanity wants a spectacular sign of God. Or like the devil, he wants a great display of divine power. But humanity does not want God to become human, being like one of us. The greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of not the failure of our faith, but the unwillingness of the human heart to accept that God, who came to us as the carpenter, the Son of Mary. This is who we have. Jesus came as the suffering servant. He came to live to show us grace, to show us and give us these glimpses of what it's going to be like when the kingdom comes. This is the God that we follow. We want him to do these mighty, great things. And when he doesn't, we get angry, we get offended, we are jealous, and we want God to move when and how we want him to. But that's not what he came to do. Jesus is not a genie at our beck and call. He's not a slot machine. If I put in enough good, if I say the right prayers, if I show up at church enough, if I do enough good things, then Jesus has to, then God has to respond to my prayers. We can't try and make God do the things we want him to do. It doesn't work that way. It's impossible. Because ultimately, what do we have to offer him? What do we have to show? What do we have to give? Nothing. Nothing. We come to him empty-handed. And yet God loved us so much that he sent his son to give us a way to have a relationship with him, to be adopted as his sons and daughters by putting our faith in Jesus, by trusting in God, even when it's hard, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's easier to just be offended, keep him at our arm's distance and ignore it, we are called to trust God. Note in verse 6, it says Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. People were offended by Jesus, and he was amazed by their unbelief. Both sides don't know what to do with one another. And so Jesus leaves to go and teach truth in other areas, to go and proclaim the good news in other places. And it's from this point of rejection that Jesus decides now is the time to send the disciples out. Let's pick it up in verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The disciples have been watching, have been listening, have been learning from Jesus for probably about two years at this point. And now they're being sent out on their first mission, they're being sent out on their own. It's kind of an odd time to do that. There's no momentum here in the ministry. Everything's kind of been halted. He was just halted. He's just been struck down in his hometown, right? I mean, if you're trying to build something, you're trying to get ready and, and build the anticipation, build the excitement. Jesus just came home and they kicked him out. They wanted nothing to do with him. And now he decides, I'm going to send the 12 out. Yet he chooses, chooses this moment to send them. He sends them out two by two to give them a th- and gives them authority over the unclean spirits. See in verse seven, and then in twelve and thirteen, he, he sends them to do what he is what he has been doing. He says, "You have authority over unclean spirits. I want you to call people to repent, cast out demons, heal the sick." They are working. They have been deputized by Jesus. They are working on His behalf. They are do, going out with the authority of Jesus. They are going out to represent Him. And he gives them specific instructions on how to go. God sends them and tells them, don't take anything extra. Don't take any money. You're going to rely completely on me. You're going to rely completely on the hospitality of people. You're going to trust the people are going to care for you through my provision for you through people. Now, this is not the only way to do ministry. Right? This is not the only way that if you want to follow God, you have to go out into the wilderness with nothing other than a pair of sandals and just trust. There are elements of that we still see today, right? Missionaries go out, they raise support, they raise funds, they go out based on, they do work based on the generosity of other people. We as a church support missionaries to do this, but that's not the only way to do ministry. He sends them in this way. He sends them trusting other people because the disciples needed to put their faith in action. They needed to trust that God was going to provide for them through the hospitality of others. And So he says in verse 10, whenever someone shows you generosity, stay there and be content there. Stay there the whole time you're in that town. Even if something better opens up, you stay in that place. Something my father-in-law taught me a long time ago is that when someone offers you their hospitality, when someone extends care to you, someone wants to show love to you, even something as simple as buying you a cup of coffee or inviting you over, don't be too proud to say no. Let people show you care and hospitality. Because you got to remember that God can be working to teach that person generosity and gentleness and care. Don't take away the opportunity from them that they may need to grow and learn to be like Christ, don't take away that opportunity from them to grow in this ability to show care for another person. We talked last week and we talked often about Ephesians 2.10. It says that we have been created for good works in Christ Jesus. That God has laid out ahead of time these good works, these people and situations for us to walk into to be a blessing to other people. But that works both ways. You may be in someone else's life to be an object of that blessing for them. You may be the good work that they have that God has laid out ahead of time for you or for them. Them caring for you might be a good work God has set up for them. And if you refuse or ignore them, you are robbing them from a chance to be an agent of grace. And that's one of the things the disciples had to learn here as they go out. Here's what it looks like to care for another person. Trust that I'm going to provide people who are going to care for you. And I want you to learn what this looks like. Because the disciples themselves, in a very short amount of time, are going to have to figure out how to be the church. In a very short amount of time, Jesus is going to be crucified, going to rise from the dead, going to ascend into heaven. And now, 11 of these 12 disciples have got to look around and say, okay, how do we do this now that Jesus is gone? How do we put this into practice? How do we be the church? How do we do this ministry life God has called us to? They needed practice. So Jesus sends them to learn, this is how you receive hospitality. Now that you've received it, you can show it to others. Now that you've been cared for, you can care for others. But he also says to them in verses 11 and 12, he says, if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. He says, you're going to be ignored. He says, you're going to be hated. It's not if they don't respond. It's you go into a town and they don't respond. He says, shake the dust off your sandals. This is a symbolic tradition. It was basically, you don't want to carry even the dust of that town to your next place. It was common for Jews who, if they had to do some kind of interaction uh, in a more Gentile area, when they left that town or that city, They would shake the dust off because they definitely don't want to bring Gentile dust back to their Jewish city. But here, Jesus is saying, even when you go to a Jewish town, if they don't receive you, if they don't receive what you are preaching, if they don't welcome you, shake the dust off. He says, basically, look, guys, you're going to get rejected for this. And I think that's why he times it this way. They just watched him come back to this small town, this group of people who have grown up with Jesus, who knew him, who you would think there would be some built-in love and respect and grace there. They just watched him crash and burn in Nazareth. Jesus is saying, look, I just got rejected in my hometown. It happened to me. It's going to happen to you. Remember a few chapters back, Jesus was teaching in parables, and he talked about the seed that was being sown, the word of God being sown. And he gives four different examples of where the seed's going to fall. Three of those four, the seed is rejected. The seed doesn't grow. That's the reality of the situation that he needs them to understand. You're going to have people that aren't going to receive you. That's okay. Just keep going. Don't let that stop you because you have truth. You have a gift. You have a blessing to share. After watching their teacher be rejected in his own hometown, the disciples go out and preach. And it says they cast out demons. They healed people through the power of the same Holy Spirit that every Christian today has, the same Holy Spirit that worked in the disciples we have today. They watched Jesus be rejected in Nazareth. They get sent out, and people are getting healed. People are getting released from demon possession. They're watching successes happen through the power of God. Yes, rejection is going to happen. Jesus was rejected. The disciples at times get rejected. Generations of faithful men and women have been rejected, ignored, hated, and killed for their faith. It's going to come with the territory. But our God is faithful. We don't see Jesus ever stopping, ever giving up, ever letting go. He keeps pressing on. The disciples keep pressing on. Even after they watch Jesus be crucified, they keep pressing on. If you read the book of Acts, they are threatened with death if they don't stop preaching about Jesus, and they keep pressing on. God is with them. God is with you. He will not abandon you. Philippians 1 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Is the one who started this in you. God is the one who called you to himself. He is the one who called you to be a Christian in the first place. He is at work in our world. It's his work that's happening. This call to be a blessing to others, to preach the good news, to share your faith with others, to tell your story of how God changed your life with others. That's God's work. He's doing the work through you. We just need to be faithful to what he calls us to and allow him who started that work to finish what he started. Yes, rejection happens. Yes, sometimes we just run into a brick wall. It feels like, why do I have to keep doing this? Why even put myself out there? God is with you. God is for you. Yes, we're going to face hard times, but also we're going to see times where, as the disciples did, we're going to see times where there's things to rejoice over, where people accept, where people believe, where people come to have faith in Jesus. Jesus sends them out at a time where it doesn't make sense, at a time where their probably, morale is pretty low. He says, now I want you to go out and I want you to experience this for yourself. And sometimes it's not going to work, but there are going to be times where you're going to see my power. You're going to see people accept this gift of grace. So do not stop. We live in a world that is hostile and indifferent to Christianity. But this world is not bigger than God. He who started this work is going to complete it, is going to finish it, is not going to be stopped because of this world. So do not let opposition, do not let rejection stop you from sharing your story of this God who made you and knows you and loves you. Do not let opposition and rejection stop you from sharing your story of how God rescued you, saved you, and adopted you as his son or daughter. God, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for giving us accounts like this where not everything is good. Thank you for giving us accounts like this where we see Jesus rejected. We see him ignored by people who should respond to him. You don't try and Make it seem like if we become Christians, everything is just sunshine and rainbows all the time. You give us the reality of the fact that there is opposition, that there is hardship, that we are, by putting ourselves in line with God, we are putting ourselves against the world, against Satan. But God, we know you are faithful, that you are bigger, that you are more powerful than anything this world has to offer, than anything this world can throw at us. And so, Lord, as we go out, in two-by-twos and, two and three-by-threes and as community groups, as we go out into the world, as we go into our jobs and our schools and our apartments and our blocks and our families. God, as we have conversations that you have orchestrated ahead of time for us, Lord, give us the boldness to step into those and give us the perseverance to continue even when we feel like we've had this conversation, we've done it a 100 different times with this person, Lord, give us the the boldness and the perseverance to have that 101st conversation. Lord, continue to empower us to share our stories of your work in our lives. The good news of great joy that you sent your son to give us a new life. God, we thank you that it's your work that's happening, that it's you who started this, it's you who will complete it from freeing us from the burden of feeling that we have to try and do everything ourselves. That is, as long as we are faithful to you, you will do mighty works. God, we don't understand sometimes why you would call us to be part of that, but you have, and we are thankful for it. God, give us the boldness and the courage and the perseverance to be the lights in the world you have called us to be. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name.